Autism has garnered much attention in recent years. One of the most interesting areas of research is the exploration of oxytocin. Could it possibly improve social interaction? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Larry Young. Dr. Young is the William P. Timmy Professor at the Center for Behavioral Neuroscience and the Department of Psychiatry at the Emory University School of Medicine. His laboratory is using interdisciplinary approaches to understand how specific genes regulate the expression of innate behaviors, with a continuing focus on social attachment and social behavior in general. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Young. Thank you, Leslie. Happy to be here. Your work on oxytocin has generated much excitement in autism circles. What got you interested in this work? Actually, I got into this work because I was interested in understanding the neurobiology of the social brain. And uh, I started this work with these little rodents called prairie voles. And prairie voles are, are really unusual animals because sort of like people, they form attachments between each other and they're monogamous. So a male and a female will form this lifelong social bond. But there are other kinds of voles that they look the same but they don't form any sort of social attachment whatsoever. So I thought it was a great model system to try to dissect out what's different in the brain between individual voles that are very highly social and form attachments versus those uh, that did not. In the beginning, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, the possible implications for autism. So it's kind of a, a built-in control system, huh? Yes, it's, it's, it's a very interesting system. The metal voles are basically asocial. They, they hmm. don't have the same sort of brain mechanisms that drive them to interact with each other, whereas the prairie voles, something in their brain drives them to interact. Hmm. Hmm. And we've been trying to determine what those differences are. And so far, what have you found? We found that in prairie voles, a molecule that you mentioned, oxytocin, is responsible for stimulating the social bond between the females and the males. So, for example, if we give a female prairie vole oxytocin and expose her to a male, uh, she will bond very rapidly to that male. In male prairie voles, another molecule called vasopressin has the same role. Oh. If we give a male vasopressin, he will bond with the female. And it turns out that the difference between the animals that form these bonds and the ones who, are, who do not is in the location of the receptors for oxytocin and vasopressin in the brain. And where are they located? Well, this is very interesting. In, in the monogamous species, the receptors for oxytocin and vasopressin are in the parts of the brain that are involved in reward and reinforcement. So these are the same parts of the brain that are involved in addiction. Oh, so the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens, the ventral pallidum, both of these areas have high densities of receptors in the monogamous species. But if you look at the species who can't form bonds, who are relatively asocial, they don't have these receptors there. Hmm. Hmm. So we think that maybe these differences in the locations of the receptors are what's producing the differences in their abilities to form bonds and maybe also their motivation to interact with other individuals. So what happens if you give the asocial moles just more oxytocin or vasopressin? Does that compensate for their lack of receptors? Well, uh, in uh, no, it doesn't. Hmm. So 
and I think that's because the, the metal voles simply do not have the receptors in the correct areas of the brain. So even if you give oxytocin or you give vasopressin to a metal vole, you're not going to activate these reward circuits. Okay, so the pathways just aren't there. The receptors are not there. Okay. But now we've, we've done something that sort of bypasses that by actually putting the receptors there in the metal vole. We actually took the prairie vole vasopressin receptor gene, placed it into the metal vole brain into the correct area, the ventral pallidum, and these these males then became able to form social bonds. So you can do kind of a bonding transplant, so to speak. Right. It's it's a kind of gene therapy. Yeah. It's a gene therapy to alter social behavior. What else have you found out about the genetics of pair bonding? We've actually been looking into the genetics of, of what makes the, the, the receptors be located in different parts of the brain. And it turns out that there's a variation in the gene, the gene that encodes the vasopressin receptor. And that variation is in the promoter of the gene. So in prairie voles, some individuals have very short stretches of DNA in the promoter, whereas some prairie voles have longer stretches of the same region in the promoter of the gene. And we have found that the individuals with longer elements of this DNA sequence produce more expression in certain parts of the brain, and they are more likely to form social attachments. The individuals with shorter versions of this stretch of DNA have less expression in the brain, and they are less likely to form social attachments. So what does that mean? Well, this, this tells us that variation in this one gene has an important role in producing variation in social behavior. Now, you might think, what does this gene that regulates pair bonding and voles have to do with human behavior? Well, there was a study that was published about a month ago from a Swedish, Swedish group that looked at this same gene in humans. We also have the vasopressin receptor gene. We also have variable lengths of this stretch of DNA that's in the promoter. And this group found that individuals with certain polymorphisms or certain versions of this gene, when they were in a relationship, if they had two copies of a certain version, they were much more likely to admit to having a crisis in their relationship in the last year. And their spouses were much more likely to indicate that they were dissatisfied in their relationship. So here's an example of where a gene and a type of variation in that gene that regulates social bonding in animals actually seems to have an effect on human social behavior. And again, a single gene. Right, it's a single gene. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Larry Young. We are discussing the mechanisms of pair bonding. So, Larry, how might all this work be used in the development of new therapeutics in humans? Well, actually, there, many people have been in, become interested in what is oxytocin doing in the brain, particularly in humans. And more recently, people have been giving people oxytocin. You can actually inhale oxytocin and it enters the brain. And they found that it affects things like trust, people who take intranasal oxytocin, have increased trust towards others. It also appears to increase 
what's called mind reading, which is the ability to infer the emotions of other peoples by looking at their subtle facial expressions. In other words, it seems that oxytocin serves a role of tuning us into the social world. Well, that may be a very, a very important thing to be able to affect in autism. Autistic individuals are often not attuned to their social world. So the idea is that maybe if, if oxytocin can influence the way that you perceive others and the way that you read social cues in a normal, in a typical individual, then might it be able to enhance social cognitive function in an autistic individual? So I think we're at the very beginning of trying to understand, you know, how we can manipulate these systems and whether it might be effective at enhancing social cognition in people with autism spectrum disorders. So back to your work with the voles, do the meadow voles look autistic compared to the prairie voles? No, they're, they're not autistic, but they do lack motivation to interact with other meadow voles, and they have a lack of ability of forming social relationships. So autism is obviously a, more, a very complex disorder that involves not only deficits in social behavior, social cognition, but also in communication, and there are also some issues with stereotypical behaviors. And, and autism, uh, oxytocin may not be something that's going to cure all of these symptoms, but I think that what it might be able to do is simply to enhance social cognitive function, that one domain, and that may help the autistic individuals be more attuned to the social world around them. And there may be other pharmacological approaches or behavioral approaches that will be needed to treat the other aspects of autism. This is kind of an out there question, but it sounds like using this nasal oxytocin might be a risk for abusing it, you know, that it sounds like something you might take to a cocktail party is sort of an aphrodisiac. Right. These studies that are coming out are very interesting, and they suggest that we can actually manipulate complex behaviors and thought processes by molecules. And so, you know, maybe maybe oxytocin could also be used as an adjunct to marital therapy mm. to bring mm. uh, relationships back together. So I, th- I think that it's, it's very exciting times, you know, understanding how chemicals in our brain and variation in genes can contribute to social behaviors and to think about how we might be able to use these uh, or how they might be misused. Right, exactly. And again, the, the implications of the genetics are fascinating as well. Right. They, they raise the question of whether it makes sense to genotype potential partners. Right, right. So these are, these are issues that bioethicists are going to be dealing with in the future. Absolutely. So what's next in your work? Uh, we are interested in looking at now what, what happens when you lose your partner. Uh, what happens when an individual is bonded with someone and then that partner disappears? How does it affect personality or does it induce grieving or bereavement? So it would be very interesting if we could use the Prevol model to sort of look at hmm. the biology of social loss. And again, I'm presuming the metavoles don't grieve because they don't really have a partner. Right, they don't yeah. have a partner. Yeah. So actually, they're just as happy, if not happier, being along <laughs> without their partner than being together with a partner. 
Great. Well, thanks so much for being on our show today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Larry Young of Emory University about how using the prairie vole may end up leading to a new treatment for autism and possibly even marital therapy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on CIRMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.cermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. This week we will be speaking with Dr. Prabhat Jha at the University of Toronto. We will be talking about widespread concerns about smoking-related mortality in India. Download complete program information, live streaming, on-demand podcasts, and free CME at ReachMD.com. ReachMD, online, on-demand, and on-air at XM160.